Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Molly Rowan Leach and I just extend such a warm invitation to you to join us today and every day this week for the kickoff of Justice Week of the Summer of Peace, a production of the Shift Network and of so many collaborative organizations worldwide. I know that so far Summer of Peace and this amazing summit has been an extraordinary experience for many and it's an honor to be hosting today Arun Gandhi. Arun was born Hi. in Durban, South Africa, and he is the fifth grandson of the legendary peace leader, of course, Mohandas K. Mahatma Gandhi. He lives in Rochester, New York, and interprets his grandfather's philosophy of nonviolence. He is the founder of the M.K. Gandhi Institute for Nonviolence at the University of Rochester, New York, and the founder and president of the Gandhi Worldwide Education Institute for res the rescue and education of children living in abject poverty and destitution. I'll share more about that website in a little bit. So we're talking about justice this week, and today's session with Arun is titled Understanding Nonviolence. So I just want to honor you, Arun, and all the people that are gathered here with us today and start out by um, asking you if you might share just a brief glimpse or story from your life that speaks to nonviolence and justice. Welcome. Thank you very much, Molly. Thank you for having me on, your, on this program. And um, I would like to... Uh, share with everybody the uh, the one lesson that I think is very important for us to uh, learn. Uh, that was the lesson that my grandfather taught me as a young boy when I was taken to him because of the uh, experiences I suffered in South Africa with color prejudice. And um, I was humiliated and beaten up uh, as a young boy and uh, and that filled me with a lot of rage, and I wanted eye for an eye justice. And uh, that's when my parents took me to India. And the first lesson that my grandfather taught me was about understanding anger and being able to channel that energy into positive action. He said that anger is like electricity. It's just as powerful and just as useful but only if we use it intelligently. But it can be just as deadly and destructive if we abuse it. So just as we channel electrical energy and bring it into our lives and good, use it for the good of humanity, we must learn to channel anger in the same way so that we can use the energy intelligently rather than abuse the energy and cause death and destruction. And he suggested that I write an anger journal said, every time you feel angry about something, don't act on it. Don't say anything or do anything that is going to um, cause you grief. Uh, but take time out from the situation and, and write the journal. But write the journal with the intention of finding a solution to the problem and then commit yourself to finding a solution. And I did this for many years, and I must say it helped me considerably in understanding my anger and being able to use that energy positively rather than uh, seek revenge. 
And, you know, that's unfortunately what justice today has come to mean. We are constantly told that um, we have to uh, get make somebody pay for what they have done to us. And, and so in that process, uh, it, it's always vengeful. We are uh, looking at uh, punishing the person and making that person pay. And then uh, even after achieving all that, we are never satisfied because we always weigh the punishment meted out to the um, to the perpetrator uh, with the puni- uh, punishment that suffered by the victim, and we are never satisfied with uh, that. And so we are caught in that whole culture of violence, and, and so you know it just goes on and on and on and takes us deeper into uh, that culture. So I think that it's very mm-hmm. important for all of us to understand our anger because that generates more than 80% of the violence that we experience in our lives. And if we can understand how to control our anger and how to use that energy positively, we will make a tremendous impact on violence that we experience in the world today. Mm. Well, I know, of course, and and all of us here together um, surely know of the saying, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And, of course, who... Who said that? And, right. and that cycle, yeah. that cycle of violence that we see, um, is never ending. How do we, exactly. how do we interrupt it, Arun? How, how do we go about interrupting the violence with nonviolence? What are, what are some practices and principles that, that might be helpful for well, us first, today? First of all, I think what we need to understand is that we have created a whole culture of violence around us. The whole world is today, um, you know, subscribing to that culture of violence. So that our relationships have become violent, our language is violent, our uh, economics is violent, our politics is violent, our religion is violent, everything about us is violent. And when we are so dominated by that culture of violence, to use nonviolence uh, occasionally may succeed temporarily, but it will not have the the desired effect. And so, what we need to be aware of that is that culture of violence, how it dominates us, how it uh, destroys our. Uh, uh, you know, sense of morality and ethics and values and, and everything. And, uh, you know, if we can understand that and and bring about a change in our attitudes towards it, then we become more and more uh, nonviolent. But, yeah, and this is the power of nonviolence, and this is what I learned from my grandfather too, that true nonviolence, uh, it, it comes from the heart, and that can mm-hmm. happen only when we transform ourselves, transform ourselves from what we are to what we can be. And, mm-hmm. and you know, he told me that every morning when I get up, I must make it a point, and I, I must, uh, you know, kind of uh, make a promise to myself that today. I am going to be a better human being than I was yesterday. 
And that means that I had to uh, analyze and examine my own weaknesses. Uh, and all of us have weaknesses, you know. And But most of the time we are not conscious of it. And even when we are conscious of it, we prefer not to do anything about it and we just let it ha- happen. And so we've got to change those weaknesses into strengths. And it's only when we are able to do that that we will ultimately become better human beings. And my grandfather did this. I mean, you know, we have to remember that he he came from very ordinary circumstances. He was born into mm-hmm. a very ordinary family. He was an ordinary student. He was not endowed with anything special or any special powers. But he had decided that he was going to be a better human being and that he was going to make this a mission in his life to climb up the stairs one step at a time every day. And he ultimately uh, was able to become what he became through his own efforts, through that determination to become a better human being. So mm-hmm. we must remember that, uh, you know, we we should not idolize these people. And, you know, unfortunately, that's been our habit. Uh, anybody mm-hmm. who's done great things, we put them on a pedestal, we worship them, but we don't follow them. We mm-hmm. say that they are uh, unique people. They were born with unique abilities, and they were able to do this, but we are just ordinary people, and we can't. Uh, you know, match them, and that's ordinary, extraordinary people, right? <laughs> yeah, we are all ordinary, exactly. extraordinary people, and I'm just curious to know if if your grandfather, what what would he say today, and um, what would a first step be for each of us in applying nonviolence in our immediate lives? Would it be what you were describing to make a commitment to ourselves each morning? Um, well, that is the first step. Yeah, that is the first step. But the second step uh, in this is to recognize how are we contributing to violence. You know, we don't realize it, but because of the culture of violence that we have been born into and, and have been subscribing to all these uh, generations, uh, some of that culture of violence has just become second nature with us. And mm-hmm. we don't even know that we are committing violence uh, in any way. So, you know, and what what he made me do uh, as a part of introspection to find out how I was contributing to violence was to make a genealogical tree of violence. Every day I, I had to, you know, as, just as we do a family tree uh, of each family, in the same, uh, uh, you know, the same way, uh, he made me draw this family tree of violence with violence of the grandparent and the uh, physical violence and passive violence as the two branches. And every day before I went to bed, I had to analyze and examine everything that I had experienced during the day things that I may have done to other people or people may have done to me or things that I may have read about, whatever it was, it had to be analyzed and put in their appropriate places on that tree. 
if it was the kind of violence where we use physical force, you know, and, and we do this all the time. We're punching people, pinching them, or, you know, kicking them, and, and murders and rapes and, and hundreds of things that we do where we use physical force against one another. Then that would go under physical violence. But if it was the kind of violence where we don't use any physical force, and yet we hurt people by way, the way we talk to them, by the way we relate to them, by the way we treat them, uh, or we exploit them, or, or whatever it is, we hurt people directly or indirectly, consciously or unconsciously all the time. And, and that, you know, I had to ask myself the simple question. If somebody were to do this to me, would I feel hurt by it or would I be helped by it? Mm. And if I come to the conclusion that it would hurt me, then that would be passive violence. And when I began to do this introspection, in a few months I was able to fill up a whole wall in my room with acts of passive violence. I mean, it just kept on growing, you know, and, and things that I had never realized that I was doing like wasting resources, for instance. You know, we do that all the time, every day. Mm -hmm. uh, we waste food, we waste resources, we uh, tear up paper because we have so much paper and we just write a few words on it and tear it and throw it away and then get another paper. And, and you know, and even simple things like going to the washroom and wa wiping our hands with paper towels. And, and so on, you know, all all of this is doing violence to the resources of the world. And that is when I came to know that we are not only committing violence against humanity, but we are also committing violence against nature by the mm -hmm. way we abuse nature and destroy nature. We think we are masters in this world and that we can do whatever we like and destroy whatever we want to and uh, and live with it but we are all interconnected with nature and with everything mm -hmm. and it's only when we come to understand and realize that that we will then be able to change our attitudes change the culture of violence and uh, become less and less violent ourselves so that introspection and realizing how we are contributing to violence ourselves is very important. You know, my grandfather then explained to me that we commit passive violence all the time, every day, consciously and unconsciously, and that generates anger in the victim, and the victim then resorts to physical violence to get justice, because that's what justice has come to mean. You got to mm. uh, use violence to get justice. There. And uh, so, uh, you know, he said, passive violence is the fuel that ignites physical violence. So logically, if we want to put out that fire of physical violence, we mm -hmm. have to cut off the fuel supply. And since the fuel supply comes from each one of us, we have to become the change that we wish to see in the world. Mm. If we don't become that change... The world is never going to change. So if each one of us changes and, and becomes 
better human beings and stop subscribing to this whole culture of violence, and uh, then we will be able to transform uh, the world and, and make it a better uh, place. Then we will have better relationships with each other. Hmm. Today, everything I... is so, de- you know, uh, uh, so dominated by the materialism that we are constantly exploiting one another as individuals as well as as nations and taking whatever we want for ourselves and not worrying about uh, what happens to uh, other parts of the world. And so we, uh, you know, we are constantly uh, destroying uh, our world ourselves. And if we don't Mm. stop destroying it, if we don't learn how to build better relationships with people and respect them and understand them, uh, then, you know, we are going to have more and more violence, like the killings in uh, in Aurora, Colorado, Mm -hmm. senseless things happening. Uh, and people going and uh, kill, shooting each other, and it looks to me like we're going to get to the back to the Wild West days when everybody will be allowed to carry guns and just shoot it out in the streets when you disagree with somebody. Uh, Arun, I would like to just pause for a moment to honor um, the Gandhi Worldwide Educational Institute again and provide for people. Um, the website address, if I might, uh, it's GandhiForChildren.org. That's GandhiForChildren.org, and four is F-O-R. And I just want to welcome you all. We're talking, of course, with beloved Arun Gandhi. My name is Molly Rowan Leach, and welcome to Justice Week of the Summer of Peace. It's a pleasure to be hosting you, Arun, and you, you've covered a lot of ground, um, and you came to a point just a moment ago of, um, really going into that place of, of our individual presence, or as, of course, we know, um, that beingness, that essence, uh, of being the change. And could you speak a little bit to where we are in, um, our collective consciousness? around what that really means? Are we coming closer to an understanding of of Be the Change in this moment in time? I don't think so. um, Of course, you know, I'm an eternal optimist, and so uh, I do (laughs) believe that people are uh, uh, getting a little more interested in nonviolence because they are getting so fed up with violence. Uh, and living in fear that they want an alternative and if somebody can talk about an alternative uh, they're willing to listen to it but unfortunately um, everybody uh, even scholars have focused a lot on Gandhi's philosophy as a means of conflict resolution whether it's political conflict or some other conflict it's just used as a conflict resolution uh, thing but there's more to that philosophy that nobody has bothered to look into. We can't have a situation where conflicts keep coming up all the time and we just try to resolve those peacefully because we we then reach a time when we get tired of using peaceful methods to resolve a conflict and and then we say, well, let's get it over with once and for all and let's bomb them and finish them off and and be done with it. And that doesn't work. 
So we have to understand that nonviolence is about personal transformation. It's about becoming better human beings, learning to create better relationships uh, with each other, not to exploit each other, not to exploit nature. And that uh, if we can live uh, amicably with everybody, that that would be the ideal thing. Mm. Well, one of one of the things that that I'm noticing in my own work is, uh, and it focuses primarily in the realm of criminal justice and restorative justice. And there, I, I've noticed that there seems to be quite an uprising, and a call on a very grassroots level towards restorative practices in on individual and community levels. And I'm wondering. Um, do you have any thoughts on on what that might indicate for for our future, or is it too late, especially here in the Western world, um, in the United States, with our uh, justice system really quite motivated by violence, of course, and by profit? Could you share your thoughts on on that kind of a broad sweeping question? <laughs> Well, I I think, you know, it's a good thing, but it's only a band-aid therapy. As long as uh, we don't look at the the ailment, the the source of the ailment, uh, and just keep applying band-aid to situations that it's not going to uh, cure the disease, it's just going to suppress it for a while. And so I see this restorative justice as just another band-aid therapy what we need to look into is the whole uh, situation of the culture of violence, which uh, determines our uh, relationships and our uh, justice system. As I said earlier, our justice system is based on violence. It's based Mm -hmm. on revenge. Uh, It's based on punishing people. And we do this even at home with our own children. When we uh, threaten our children with punishment if they don't behave, we are trying to control them through fear. And that is what happens as adults when, uh, you know, we have laws and everything to control us. We are constantly being controlled by fear. And controlled Mm -hmm. by fear is not something that anybody likes. And they just suffer that fear for a, a while and then they try to get out of it. And, and get out of it through violent means, uh, by retaliation or, or something. So, you know, we have to stop, uh, you know, this whole question of punishment. Uh, you know, I was brought up in a nonviolent home, and my parents believed in nonviolence completely. And so we were not punished when we misbehaved, my two sisters and I. And believe me, we were not very ideal kids. We did misbehave. (laughs) Uh, But we were never punished for it. My parents Mm. did penance. And the way this took place was if we, depending on how serious the offense was, uh, they would fast for a day or two days or something, and uh, they would cook the meals, they would sit at the dining table, feed us, there, but they would tell us that they are not eating because they were not good parents. They didn't teach us the right way of behavior, and so they had to do penance for it. But because the relationship between the parents and the children 
was based on mutual love and respect. We felt awful when our parents had to do that. And so we made sure that we never did that again. And that is the key to the whole thing, you know. But as long as we, you know, want to take this quick um, measures of of suppressing something or controlling somebody through fear by threatening them, uh, that, that is whole thing is part of the culture of violence, and we are only perpetuating that culture of violence. So my feeling about justice system today is the same as uh, our parenting techniques. As long as we just catch people and punish them and throw them into prisons because they did something wrong, we are not focusing on what were the things that motivated them or made them do what they did. We are just concerned with catching the person and locking them up and throwing the key away. And mm-hmm. that doesn't help anybody. Now, you know, My- when we go back into situations, we've got to look at the things in society that make people do bad things. But, you know, because we are also believing in this whole culture of violence, we take the easy way out. We define the world by bad people and good people. And uh, we think that if we just catch all the bad people and punish them or eliminate them, we will have a world full of good people. But, uh, you know, we have to realize that every one of us is capable of doing bad things and good things depending on mm-hmm. what buttons are pressed. So what I'm trying to say uh, in a very complicated way is that we have to transform ourselves and transform society to create a nonviolent world and create a world where peace can really prevail in the true sense. Because peace is not the absence of war. Peace is not the absence of violence in the streets. We must look at peace in the holistic way of how we exploit people, how we exploit nature, and and true peace will come only when we stop doing all these things and live a a decent, ethical, moral lifestyle. Mm. I so deeply agree with you and feel the truth of our need to go to the root cause and core and not to put a Band-Aid on um, exactly. what what the cycle is that causes people to, to be um, in a, a place of, of, of perpetration. And, of course, like you yeah. just said, the perpetrator is also a victim, and that in and of itself right. is a violent cycle. Um, my understanding, though, of restorative justice practices, especially, for example, in New Zealand, um, they've employed restorative justice as their primary um, uh, systemic way for the youth um, system. And what it entails seems to me to be somewhat of a, of a guiding post for perhaps what we could do here in the United States as it embodies some of what you're speaking to, Arun. Um, are you aware of what they're what what they've been doing over in New Zealand with their system, by chance? Not not really. I've heard uh, and read a little bit about it, but I wouldn't say that I know it. Mm-hmm. It just seems to be that that the structural aspects that they have set up um, 
lead to a place of understanding what happened with uh, that would have caused a person to stray from um, their basic goodness to to perpetrate. And there's um, right. forms of nonviolent communication and deep, you know, deep connection and safety that include the community, the perpetrator, the victim, and the family members. And they all go in together and decide on appropriate atonement and reparation. Um, and so I, yeah, you know, in my own humble way, I think that this might be a way for us to look towards something that could answer to what you're speaking to, which is very important. Yes, I think so. And I, if you, uh, you know, if what you are saying is right, then I think that would be a ideal model to begin with mm-hmm. and, and transforming society gradually in, in that fashion. But it requires a lot of uh, uh, understanding and, and especially from the people you know mm-hmm. now take for instance what happened in aurora recently and and look at the mm-hmm. reaction of the people uh, to that event everybody is clamoring to uh, you know make kill the person or destroy that person uh, i have heard so many interviews on the radio where people are saying that uh, we should have uh, more liberal gun uh, laws so that people could have bought guns and if there was a uh, if the people in the theater had guns they could have shot the man and killed him so mm-hmm. i'm trying to imagine myself sitting in a theater full of people about 50 or 60 of them carrying guns with them and if some person did what this guy did and all those 50 60 people pull out their guns and start shooting what chaos would be there in the theater Instead of mm-hmm. one person doing this, you have 60 people killing each, uh, each other and shooting at each other. Can you just imagine the, the chaos and the destruction that would have taken place? It, it's just, you know, illogical. I mean, the, uh, and, and that's something that I keep saying uh, all the time, that the United States has shown the world that it is a superpower in terms of its military strength, it now needs to show the world that it can be a superpower in terms of its moral strength, too, that mm-hmm. we are willing to do what is good for the world mm-hmm. and not just what is good for ourselves. Mm. That's a powerful statement right there. And if we could turn it into uh, a place of, of uh, a statement, where we, we could easily do that for our world. We could we could place yeah, sure. uh, high importance on compassion and nonviolence, while also understanding that it's you know the the greatest critics of of uh, nonviolence seem to to say that of nonviolence and of course restorative practices as well seem to think that it's soft and excusing of of crime. Um, what would you say yeah, to that, yeah. Arun? I think it's wrong. I mean, you know, we look at crime. Why is crime happening? Nobody asks that question. Why <laughs> Why is crime happening? Uh, you know, we just look at uh, that the crime statistics are high. We need to do something about it. We need to build more prisons. We need to give people more guns. Uh, and that's the reaction to it. But mm-hmm. nobody has ever stopped to find out why is crime increasing? 
in spite of the laws that we have, in spite of all the punishment that we meet out every year to people, why is crime increasing here? And the reason for this is that there are people who are living in tremendous distress and nobody is paying any attention to them. Uh, today, 15 million people in the United States are living in uh, distress, in poverty, and mm-hmm. and they have That's to right. go to bed in hunger, you know, hungry. Right. And yet they see so, uh, the other half of the people throwing away food and uh, over-consuming food and all that. So, you know, what reaction is going to be in the, those people's minds there? They're going to commit crime. They said, if we can't get anything legitimately, let's steal, let's rob. And and that's how, you know, the whole crime situation uh, comes into being. And then we want to put a lid on it and, and we just enact more laws and, and punish them more severely and, and never look at the cause of the crime. You know, I was I take a group every year on a Gandhi legacy tour. Uh, most of them are from students and even some adults from the United States. They come on the tour there. Ten years ago, I had a group of uh, young women from Wellesley College with a couple of their professors. And this tour is quite a modest thing. You know, we don't... We go out into the villages and we see things in small towns and villages as well as in the cities. So we travel by bus and train and it's very dusty and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And so after five days of this kind of uh, roughing it out, these women were all very... Um, getting jittery and getting a little anxious and started whispering among themselves, when are we going to get a good shower and when are we going to be able to wash our hair and when are we going to be able to sleep in a nice bed? All of these things, they were whispering among themselves. Then on the sixth day, we reached the city of Ahmedabad where somebody had opened a five-star hotel and they were offering rooms there because it was brand new, offering rooms at half the rate. So our agents got us the rooms in that uh, hotel. And so when we entered the hotel and they saw all the luxuries that they were used to in the United States, they were all so excited and they were, you know, thinking about and talking about washing their hair and sleeping finally in a proper bed and all those kinds of things. Then they went up to their rooms and they came back quickly searching for me and they said, Mr. Gandhi, we have to move from here. We can't stay in this place. I said, why not? Moments ago you were so excited and you... Uh, we're looking forward to sleeping in a good bed and all that. What's happened suddenly? And they said, we went up to the rooms and looked out of the window and we see all those poor mm. people living there in subhuman conditions and, uh, you know, out in the open. And we feel guilty about living in this kind of luxury. Mm-hmm. So I said, I'm glad you feel guilty about it, but this is going to be a lesson for you that this is the reality of the world, that half the world does live like those people do, 
But because in the United States we don't have a window to that half of the world, we can block them out and, and pretend that they don't exist. But here you are going to see the other half of the world every day, as long as we live in this hotel. And I hope mm. you will realize what mm. your responsibilities are. You know, and, and at the <laughs> end of our call today, we're going to be um, just uh, inviting, uh, uh, making it real for our lives, for each of us um, who are circled today mm. from all over the world. And uh, um, one of those things perhaps may be to add to the, the beauty of what you were sharing earlier uh, around the practice that, that grandfather had you do every day in the morning um, with the the overt and not so overt, but very subtle violences that occur, um, where we can we can begin to remember very viscerally um, our interconnection in in a way. Of course, that traveling to a country um, certainly helps that. But even if we can't do that, how how can we open our heart and mind to that place of interconnectivity, which supplements? Um, that space of nonviolence, does it not? Yes, it does. And that's what happens, you see. As long as we subscribe to the culture of violence, uh, we allow all the negative feelings and thoughts and attitudes in us take control. And mm. so we um, hate people, we are angry with people, we want to grab things from people, we want uh, to think about ourselves and our families and nobody else matters we you know everything has become very negative in in that sense so we mm-hmm. suppress things like compassion and understanding and all that we suppress them and allow them only on certain occasions to take control like if there's a big disaster then everybody is suddenly very compassionate and they give some money and then forget about it and go back to their life Mm-hmm. So it's only when we begin to understand uh, and and change that culture of violence into a culture of non-violence that all the goodness in people emerge. And that mm. is the beauty of non-violence. People say that non-violence is a negative philosophy that it's uh, you know opposite of violence and all that and I said not at all. It's not negative, it's a very positive philosophy because it enables you to bring out all the positive aspects in human beings, all the love and compassion and respect and understanding uh, that we keep suppressed because we think those are weaknesses and and that we shouldn't show anybody those weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Those are not weaknesses. Those are the, the way in which civilized human beings must behave. Mm-hmm. We can't be uh, civilized and be hateful and violent and angry and and frustrated. Uh, you know that's not part of the civilized behavior. So it it well, is that whole thing, that whole transformation that needs to take place. And until we do that, uh, we cannot really change the world. We might do you know little band-aid things here and there and feel satisfied by it, but uh, that doesn't last very long. Mm. Well, we're we're coming close, Arun, to a spot where I'd really like to open up the spirit of the circle here for questions um, in a few sure. more minutes here. 
and um, invite all of you who are with us today to um, press star 2 on your keypad when you'd like to ask a question here um, to Arun. And uh, I'm just going to actually go ahead and open that up right now. I wanted to talk to you a little bit more at some point, if we have time, Arun, about a paper you wrote um, that's posted on your website about atonement and the, the, mm. the importance of atonement and its relationship with nonviolence um, as well as justice. But let, let's open up for a question or two first. Yeah. Um, Lindsay, if you could open it up, please, to Mystic Healer, please. Hello. Welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for taking my call. Oh my gosh, yes. Um, in transformation, we're looking at um, changing the societies per each community. And I've been working mm-hmm. um, on a um, petition for changing the communities, educational enlightenment transformation centers so that we could use all kinds of um, interactive and new teaching and training uh, courses for the youth, get them on their sole purpose, which is never to kill. It's always divine, creative, life source. Get them connected to their soul power connections and um, invite new civil services for each community Mm -hmm. that for not just the teachers and firemen to make sure that they're well taken care of, but to help with um, all the healing artists, spiritual work, all the, um, you know, different movements, sound, art, music, music, dance. Um, These are civil services. These are the new health and human services for prevention, intervention, health care. And by working with those in the transformation processes, too, that would be able to be at these centers, they would be able to use if, someone's angry, they can go in and get enlightened, you know, transformed and enlightened in the center. You know, if they can't meditate themselves, there's a process I've developed in other people where they can, you know, find their answers inside of them. What's their life story? What's their life grid? Why are they here? Get them refocused, network them, and put them to work, you know, doing what they really came to do. And it's yeah, and, and you know what? What is your uh, excuse have, me just for interrupting? But what was your question exactly? My question is: um, Isn't it true that as long as we keep um, proliferating these jobs and paying people, like in the U.S., I came from a military background, and you know the youth are taught and trained for free, um, really to literally kill each other, and so. Um, you know, they get a lot of benefits, and the way that is set up um, is What is so, your question, please? Um, that I'm if, sorry, but we have other callers, <laughs> and I want to honor the time here. <laughs> well, I think I understand what you're trying to say, but, you know, we have to look at this uh, situation. As long as we don't create a society where, um, you know, people can really live in love and respect with each other, uh, we can't eliminate the police or the uh, the army and and say well, uh, well we'll do away with them. The only time we can do away with them is when we are able to create an ideal society, a society where uh, we don't exploit each other and don't grab things from each other and and treat everybody equally. 
So I think what you are doing through your center is a very positive uh, beginning, uh, and I wish you good luck. And uh, and I think uh, uh, yeah, we would have a wonderful uh, world if we could eliminate all the armies uh, and uh, and you know use that money to uh, provide better living conditions and housing conditions for the poor people of the world. But that will take place only when we transform ourselves. Wonderful. Um, it looks like we have a question from the webcast, uh, and, it, and it's from Sue. She asks, can you comment on the relationship between Martin Luther King Jr. and Mahatma Gandhi? Yeah, sure. They both lived at different times, so they never personally met. When my grandfather was assassinated in 1948, Dr. Martin Luther King was still a young man, a student in in college or, or high school, I don't remember now. But uh, they never met each other. But Dr. King first heard about my grandfather after Dr. Mordecai Johnson, another African-American leader and educationist, uh, went to India and met my grandfather in 1939 and uh, came back with uh, his impressions and he gave a lecture in uh, New York City somewhere and Dr. King uh, happened to go to that lecture and he was uh, struck by um, what my grandfather uh, did and, and his lifestyle and so on. And he says in his book, uh, that he went straight from that lecture to the first bookstore that he could find and bought all the books on Gandhi that he could uh, get in that bookstore. And that was the, his initial uh, introduction to Gandhi. Hmm. Great. Well, I'd like to go ahead and field one more um, caller. And uh, go ahead from the caller from Austin, Texas. You had your hand up. You're unmuted and welcome. Yes, thank you very much. There are a couple of things I'd like to hear spoken to. Is Number one, on tomorrow's broadcast, there's going to be a friend and colleague of mine, Dominic Barter, who's going to present his work in Brazil on restorative circles. And it's very much in agreement with what I hear spoken to here, which is there needs to be a systemic change in our way of looking at how we're going to handle our disagreements and away from retributive measures or punishment and in more to, into a restorative measure of how we restore balance back into the system. So that I just wanted to do alert people that are on the line listing that that's going to be on tomorrow. And then the question that I have that I would like to hear spoken to is my understanding is that Gandhi was just as much interested in courage as he was in nonviolence. As a matter of fact, when he was given a choice between someone who was uh, not very brave and nonviolent. He would much rather see someone be brave and violent. I'd like to hear that spoken to, if I may. Yeah, Thank sure. You. He did say that, and uh, of course, he also added to the fact that uh, he said, "I, uh, I am willing to die, but there is no cause for which I am willing to kill." So, in his uh, sense of the word courage. It didn't mean that you have to get up and fight and uh, uh, you know and and use uh, violent means there, but that you should be courageous enough to offer your life 
in instead of destroying the other person say okay you want to kill me go ahead and kill me but i'm not going to hate you or i'm not going to be angry with you or whatever it is the situation and uh, that takes a, a good deal more courage uh, to do than to stand up to somebody who has a weapon and um, draw your own weapon and shoot it out with them yes mm. thank you very much it's a very courageous thing to do to be able to offer your life up yeah, and, for your is. beliefs right. yeah thank you very much for that answer i'm happy hearing that Mm, thank thank you. you, and thanks for for making note of tomorrow's guest, uh, the incredible Dominic Barter, and restorative circles and and uh, Arun. Let's let's just take a few more minutes here before we start closing. Um, I have another question from the webcast, and uh, I'd like to talk a little bit more, kind of circle back around to Aurora in just a moment. So and and a little mm. bit about atonement. Um, but let's let's honor. Uh, let's see here. Andrew from Los Angeles submitted a, a question from the webcast. He asks, "Does nonviolence mean the elimination of violence, or seeking the least violent solution for the situation at that given time?" Well, it means initially to eliminate violence from human beings and from society itself. But we can't do that overnight. Uh, we have to take it in stages. So we have to begin to reduce the level of violence that we see in our societies and in ourselves and uh, and start from there. And once we begin the reduction, uh, then ultimately we will have a society where we won't need any violence. Thank you. And... and um... The, the paper that I was referring to earlier, um, you, you tell a short story um, probably very often, I'm guessing, uh, in this paper. Um, it's called Atonement, the Gandhi Way, and it's from mm. it's posted on, on your website at arungandhi.org. Yeah. And you, you tell a story about Grandfather and, and his experience with atonement. And I highlighted a little piece here um, I just want to share with people. You say, my fear is that punishment seldom brings about reformation of a character. It only shames the person deeper into the hole. How many times have I heard prisoners tell me, we are willing to atone for our sins, but is society willing to forgive us? Could you could you share a little bit about grandfather's experience and atonement and its relationship to nonviolence and, and justice? Yeah, certainly. You know, atonement and uh, and forgiveness, I think, are part of the uh, same coin, the two sides of the same coin. There. And um, so it's very much in the part of the philosophy of nonviolence. Like the time when he was in South Africa as a young man and he was uh, almost lynched by a mob there. And the police were able to arrest some members of the mob and they invited my grandfather to come to the police station and file charges against them so that they could be punished. And grandfather went to the police station and in front of the, those people, the, the perpetrators, he told the police, he says, I don't want them to be punished because punishment is not going to teach them anything. They will suffer the punishment and they will come out just as hateful as ever. 
So he mm-hmm. said, I'm going to not file charges. I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to let them walk out of this uh, prison uh, and be free. And I hope that they will learn a lesson uh, that uh, this, what they did was wrong and, and that they shouldn't do it anymore. And by that simple action of his, uh, he was able to transform uh, three of the four people into becoming his close friends and supporters. And the fourth person didn't become a close friend, but he never uh, showed any uh, signs of uh, uh, of prejudice or color prejudice uh, again. So that that is the uh, the meaning of forgiveness and atonement, I think. You know, and, and that illustrates uh, it very much. If we don't believe in just punishing people for what they did, but rather than that transforming them, uh, we would achieve greater results. Are we are we afraid of our vulnerability? Is that what keeps us uh, I away think, from? Yes, we are. We we think it's a weakness that we we think that if we forgive somebody and uh, that uh, you know we might be. Uh, looked as at as wimp and and it's all part of that whole culture of violence that I'm talking about you know mm-hmm. that m- makes us believe in being macho in being strong in not letting anybody walk all over you and that kind of brainwashing that we have been subjected to for all these years uh, has cre- conditioned us to wanting to punish somebody as severely as we can for what they have done, and forgiveness, uh, and, and you know, when we do forgive, it's always conditional. We put mm. conditions on it, and we said we'll forgive you if you do this or if you do that. That is not forgiveness. Forgiveness mm-hmm. is has to be just as love is unconditional. Mm-hmm. Love, forgiveness also needs to be unconditional. Mm. Right, and and there's a quite a, a gap between authentic forgiveness and um, and spoken forgiveness as well, is there not? Exactly, exactly. So with the, with a few minutes here that we have left, um, I'd just like to loop back around to the Aurora event and and maybe even to Syria, and if you'd like to speak um, a message about. Uh, just just to share with the people listening, and of course this is being recorded and will be posted at, at uh, Summer of Peace, the programming page, and will be up for, I think, an indetermined amount of time. So would you be able to share your thoughts and feelings and, and a message about the these particular events in our world? Well, it is very sad, but it, you know, the other... Part of it is that this is part of the whole culture of violence. And you cannot oppress people forever. You cannot keep them, uh, mm-hmm. you know, under your thumb forever. And uh, when they get a chance, they're going to strike back. I mean, what's happened in Syria and, and other places is that that dictatorship that controlled the people for such a long time uh, eventually had to go. And when people didn't see the writing on the wall and they just repressed the people more and more, then, you know, mm-hmm. the lid blows off and, and then we have the mm-hmm. situation that we have uh, right now. And 
it doesn't help anybody. The victims or the perpetrators, you know, what's happened in Syria now, they're killing each other and destroying each other. And every time I see this on the TV and I, I'm looking at the total destruction that's taking place there of uh, buildings and, and, you know, historic places and, and things, just it's not just the human lives that are going uh, being lost, but so much of history is being lost because of the madness of um, a few people. And mm. this is the tragic thing, you know, and this is going to happen more and more uh, because so many people around the world have been repressed for such a long time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's also not just the political repression that we have to consider, but the economic repression and and keeping mm-hmm. people living in poverty and and destitution and when mm. they see half of the world enjoying a fantastic lifestyle and and the other half of the world not getting even a bread piece of bread to eat uh, you know that that creates uh, this kind of anger and hatred and frustration that uh, eventually blows up in uh, in this kind of violence mm. I just I would like to um just for a moment share with everyone that the replay of this recording will be available for 48 hours and then if you wish you can take advantage uh of an option to have lifetime access to all of the sessions from this free summer of peace event um that I believe lasts through the International Day of Peace in September. So Arun, um, finally, what, what, if anything, gives you hope for the future? And then we'll go into our little in closing segment, um, making it real. So what, well, what gives one you hope has for to the be future, hopeful. Arun? As I was saying, one has to be hopeful, otherwise we won't do anything at all, you know, in bringing about. So I look at myself as a peace farmer, uh, and I'm going around speaking to people and planting seeds in their minds mm. and hoping that they will nurture those seeds and, and eventually we will have a good crop of peacemakers. Mm. So, you know, I know that I don't have the capacity to change uh, everybody uh, or to bring about a whole transformation in the world, but I do have the capacity to plant these seeds. Mm-hmm. So I'm just satisfied doing that and and then... Uh, letting uh, those people nurture those seeds and and you know become more peaceful. I love that metaphor, Arun, of peace farmer. <laughs> That's really beautiful. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. Mm. Our collective garden that we're planting together, yeah. and and the small actions that we can take, um, right, individually on a very moment to moment basis to bring us back mm-hmm. to presence and, and to being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's um, it's getting close here to close, and I just want to invite, um, if, if you would like to share, I know that we already did a bit uh, when we opened uh, today. Is there anything you'd like to invite uh, all of us together on this global telecouncil as far as making it real, is there any one practice or maybe a synopsis of a practice that you'd like to offer um, in order well, to, like to make it people, real and bring it into the world? 
Yeah, I'd like to tell uh, inspire people to do little things and, and make a difference. You know, we always try to look at the big picture and we want to change that big picture and we don't have the capacity to do that. But we can eventually change that big picture if we make little changes in the picture beginning, uh, you know, small and working up towards uh, building a change. So this Gandhi Worldwide Education Institute that I started a few years ago uh, is to get the very poor children who are living in poverty and destitution for generations to get them out of that cycle of poverty by giving them the means uh, to educate themselves as well as to uh, create something that would bring them a steady income in life. Mm. And I think that's a first step in, in trying to improve the lives of the poor people around the world and and uh, making a difference. So all of us mm. can do these little things. And uh, if we can't start uh, projects ourselves, we can support projects uh, that are going on in our neighborhoods and take more uh, interest in these kinds of compassionate activities. Uh, but they, these compassionate activities also have to be constructive. It's not right. enough, for instance, to go and give somebody money to go and buy food, and, and you know that would feed that person for one day. But what's going to happen the next day and the day after? We make those people dependent. So it has to be constructive in the sense that it's better to teach them how to fish rather than give them a fish every day. Right. I just would like to remind everyone the website for the Gandhi Worldwide Educational Institute is Gandhi for GandhiForChildren.org. And thank you right. so much, Arun. Thank you so much for oh, being you're with welcome. us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on the show, and I hope it was useful and uh, that I was successful in planting some seeds. Hmm. And may our collective garden truly grow in in all yeah. ways, in nonviolence and peace. And I just want to thank you again for your life, your service, and for the farmer that you are. <laughs> and uh, to invite everyone to please come again tomorrow, same time, noon Pacific time. I'll be hosting the extraordinary Dominic Barter of Restorative Circles. Thank you, everyone. Have a great afternoon Thank you, or wherever Molly. you are in the world. Thank, Thank you, Arun. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.